Good morning. Good morning. How are we? Good, good. Welcome, welcome. My name is Chris, one of the pastors here at Kessid. Um, I uh, am hoping we all got our barbecue in and we got our fireworks in and we had a good weekend. We got a, had a good holiday um, and you have as much energy, energy as I do, right? Yes? Amen? Hallelujah. <laughs> well, we'll get there together this morning. Uh, if you're new with us, we have been walking through a series called Crimson. What we've been doing is focusing in on the book of Acts. So what we, and, and so to do that, we've looked at both a 10,000 foot view and kind of a zoomed in view of the, the bigger narrative of the story, which is just this, a group of people that have experiences with God whose lives are changed and they can't help but change the lives of the people around them. And we have this historical record of that that we get to study. And then inside of that, we zoom into the store of people like Paul who have their unique, so not just a communal experience, but they have their own unique experiences with God. And we get to look and zoom in on their unique experiences with God and how they relate to that, how they behave in that, the mistakes that they make in that, the truth and the, and the faith that they have and everything in between. And so we've been kind of looking at that. And so um, today we're going to dive in on that and this idea of, of who God is, his character and nature. So to do so, I need your help at the beginning, all right? So I'm going to ask you to do something. All right, I'm going to ask you a question and your job is going to have to, you're going to have to turn to your neighbor and actually share the answer to that. So can we all take a deep breath? We can do this together, all right? It's all I'm going to ask you to do, do for the rest of the message, okay? It's a really simple question, Okay. Turn to your neighbor and answer, what three words would you use to describe God? Okay, this is just your words. There's no, well, there's a couple wrong answers, but there's no real wrong answers. <laughs> What's your experience? What three words would you use to describe God? Okay, go ahead and say, say your answer to somebody next to you. Some of you have more than three words, and that's awesome. You're terrible at following directions, but I love you anyway. Um, so here's what I would wager. I'm not, I'm not certain, but I would wager if you did share three words with somebody and they shared three words back with you, unless you just went and like you copped out and you said like ditto, right? You, <coughs> you had different words that you shared. Now, why is that, Right? We have different experiences. I sent this question out to some friends this week, and they had a few answers that I wanted to throw up here. This isn't all the answers, but this is just some of them, okay? I wonder if yours is in here. Some people said that they would describe God as Father, right? As constant, mercy, shield, able, love, as intimate, as inexhaustible, which is just a big word for me. I, I wouldn't use a word that big, but you're smarter than me. That's all right. Freedom, provider, friend, teacher, immeasurable, distinguished, good. I sent this to my friends, and they actually asked their, uh, their child, their daughter, and she said, nice, God was nice, and I thought that was a pretty awesome answer. <laughs> Infinite, benevolent, and I think my favorite answer was, not me, right? And this idea is that, like, I, I'm trusting, as I describe him, I don't know everything about him. What I know is he's bigger than me, right? Like he cannot be contained inside of just what is me. So here's my, here's my next question. You don't have to say this to, you, to your neighbor. 
you guys all had different answers. Who was wrong? Nobody, right? The answer is that God is that big. That each one of us are unique individuals with our unique individual experiences of God. And so maybe your answer is more rooted in your upbringing and the teaching that you got of who God is. And maybe your answer is more rooted in how you're experiencing him right now in your current situation. But regardless, as we are all looking at different and unique facets of God, every single one of us. And our job is to explain it, is to share that. And the cool, the best thing about this is our God is that big. He is that loving and that gracious and that kind. And all those words and so many more go to describe his character and his nature. One of my favorite theologians says this. He says, we tend by a secret law to move towards our mental image of God. So right now, those words kind of describe your mental image of God. And we tend to move towards whatever our image of God is, that there is a yearning inside of us, within us, to know God. And here's the thing, to know the real God, not the counterfeit one, not the one we were just given in maybe Sunday school growing up, right? Not the limited one, but God himself. And there is something inside of us. Tozer goes on to say this, the yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to touch and taste the unapproachable arises from the image of God in the nature of man. Deep calleth unto deep, and though polluted and landlocked by the mighty disaster that theologians call the fall, the soul senses its origin and longs to return to its source. And so as we open the scriptures, we realize and we recognize that the Bible is a collection of different stories that share the experiences of people longing return to their source, the real source, not the fake one, not the counterfeit one. And our job as we get together is to shave away the false, to shave away what isn't real, to acknowledge what is, and also acknowledge the new revelation that is, that maybe we're not aware of. I want to say something that might shock you. Um, God is bigger than you think, right? He, he is, like your knowledge, you may have studied the Bible for your entire life, okay? He's bigger than that, right? He's bigger than that. And so every single day, not just when you're sitting in church, not just when you're opening the scriptures, but in every experience that we have, we have an opportunity to commune with him, to be in relationship with him, and he is all things, and he is everywhere, and he is intimate. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a story today. We're going to look at the story today of a man, and we have been studying, but we're going to look at the story today of a man who rose up and with all power and authority had a false view of God, and he moved forward with that. And then his heart and his life was changed as as God reshaped and reimagined for him just who God was, his character, and his nature. And then we're going to watch him in this journey as, as his goal is with humility and love to go share with others who have a similar story that might have a false view of God. As we zoom in on our story today, this gentleman, his name is Paul. And Paul is a great example of this, a man whose profession... I don't even know if we can understand the gravity of this. His 
actual paid profession was to hunt humans. He went door to door. Was it because he didn't believe in God? No, he actually believed in God. He had a false view of God. He saw a God of rules and orders, and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was uh, a Jewish trained man, and his idea with God looked like this. God was this, and these new Christians with their new teaching, and this man Jesus did not fit inside of his box. And so his thought and his belief system was that he was actually protecting the faith by hunting down these troublemakers. They were turning the world upside down. And so he hunted them. And then he, he has this unique experience with God as he's traveling down the road. And he is knocked off his horse and he is blinded. And he has a one-on-one intimate conversation with God. And he is put into a place of all humility. He is forced into a place onto his knees where he is dependent on others, on his enemies. And through that experience, his heart has changed. And now we see this man that is on a mission to go minister to others who have a false view of God. He cares about this. Matthew Henry said, It was the greatest honor God did to man that he made God in the image, he made, sorry, man in the image of God. But it is the greatest dishonor that man has done to God that he has made God in the image of man. So Paul cares about this, and he, he understands this, and he, through his life, he's saying, that was a false image, and so we're going to reshape that. He's going to do everything he can, and so we see this rhythm. We've been studying it. We've been looking, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. We're fresh out of, Danny taught last week, we're fresh out of Paul being in prison. Uh, now, for whatever reason, the God working in his life and in his, in his heart, even prison itself could not um, dishearten Paul. And God moves inside the prison, and the guards come to faith, and the the doors are open, and he escapes prison. And so if you are in that place, and you start sharing your faith, and you are uh, dragged into prison, what you may want to do next is lay low, right? Like that's like next thing. This is not what our friend Paul does. Paul ends up in this rhythm where he goes to a town and he shares the gospel and he goes into the synagogue. It actually says this was his custom. He went to the synagogues, the, the, the place that Jewish leaders and rabbis met to teach the scriptures. And he shared from the scriptures to point to the Christ and say, Jesus was the Christ. These, these people, they had been told their entire life that the Christ was coming, the Savior, the Messiah was coming. And What Paul did is he went in and he showed them through the scriptures that, yes, he actually came, right? And let me tell you about him. And people started believing that. And it was an exciting moment, but here's the problem, right? When when the people of power start losing power, they generally get a little violent, right? They generally want their power back. And so what they ended up doing is bringing riots continually. Paul would go to a town. He would share the gospel. He would share the truth of Jesus. People would become saved, follow him. They would get, the religious authorities would get mad, either imprison Paul, beat him, chase him. And so what would happen at the, at the 11th hour, all right, Paul's disciples would send him to the next town. 
And so he's like, and he would start all over again. He's like, all right, where's the synagogue, right? Let me start sharing. And the same thing would happen again. He does this several times, almost gets killed, till finally, instead of sending him 10, 20, 30 miles away, his disciples finally send him a, a good 315 or so miles away to this place called Athens. Now, this is different ground. Okay? He has been speaking in places where the Jewish thought and ideas was the leading thought in the culture, okay? was the dominant force in the culture. And now he gets sent to a place in Athens, Greece, where the dominant thought is philosophy. The dominant thought is not uh, the religion that he knows. And he's now put into a unique space as he goes into town there. Now, again, he is sent there to lay low, but does he? Now, Paul doesn't know how to lay low. And so the scriptures, I'm going to read briefly um, the scriptures in chapter 17 of Acts, verse 16. It says this, and Paul was sent to Athens. It says, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, okay, laying low, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Again, you have a false view of God. I look around and it's not just there's images of God. You have a false belief of who God is in his character and his nature. So he reasoned in the synagogue, which is his normal thing, with the Jews and the devout persons. But then, because Paul's a troublemaker, he can't just stay in the synagogues, right? And in the marketplace every day with those that happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus of Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Okay, so pause in the story. Paul goes and he does the same thing. He goes to the synagogue, but he can't just stay there because culture isn't there. Everywhere else he's gone, he gets to speak to culture from the synagogue. In this place in Athens, all right, uh, Jewish thought is, a, is, a, is an afterthought. And so he goes into the marketplace and because the Greeks love debate and they love hearing new things. He gets invited to this place called Areopagus. So I was blessed uh, about seven or eight years ago to travel to do kind of a Holy Lands tour. I want to show you a couple pictures of this place. This place in Athens called the Areopagus right, is a naturally formed marble hill. It's beautiful. It's amazing. This became, um, this was also known as Mars Hill, uh, and it was the cultural and intellectual center of the ancient world. We got to remember, guys, this place was the leading place of technology, of, of thought, right? And this was the center of it. The Areopagus or Mars Hill is a bare marble hill next to the Acropolis in Athens, right? So <clears throat> when we look at, so if we can zoom back to the other one, there we go. So you've got this marble hill right here. I just want to give you the setting. Okay? Before he was kind of in podunk towns going into the synagogue, which is the most important city, right? he went to the synagogues and he gets invited to this hill. This is where all of the philosopher and the, and the smartest men and minds of the day met and they debated. And it's in the shadow of some of the most impressive creations of man ever that's ever been made. 
right? This is the place he goes to share the gospel. They're not exactly yearning for this new gospel. They just like hearing new things. And here's the thing about Paul's story, right? He's been walking around Athens, and right below this, you can't see it in this picture, but there's a giant marketplace. There's a flat ground. The Greek um, philosophers and leaders of this day, their relationship with God was kind of unique, huh? That what they believed was that the gods were powerful and that the gods needed to be worshipped in their own way and given sacrifices, but they did not believe in a personal relationship with God or any of the gods. They believed in gods that just wanted stuff, and if we gave them the right stuff, they wouldn't throw lightning bolts at us. That was like literally the relationship. So what they did was they built down this road, this corridor, they built temple after temple of every god that they've ever heard of. So there's a temple to Zeus, and there's a temple to every Greek god. Right? And what they would do is they'd bring offerings, they would bring food, they'd bring gold, and their goal was, I'm going to give God as little attention in my life as possible because I have this real work of, of philosophy and understanding truth. And so we're just going to throw God some stuff on the side, and that's the nature of our relationship. And my hope is he doesn't throw a lightning bolt at me, and then he blesses me. Right? And then in this same corridor of all the named gods, at the end of the corridor, there was one temple and it said to the unknown God. And so what the Greeks had done is like, just in case we haven't covered all our bases, let's make one that kind of like wraps everybody else in there and we're going to throw offering to them. And so if some God shows up and we don't know their name and they're mad at us, we can be like, hey, we made one for you. We just didn't know your name, right? So it's, again, <clears throat> back up from this, what we're seeing is a particular culture with a belief towards God that said God is far away. The God, the God, this God shows up in power and throws lightning bolts. And Paul's heart is to share the truth. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of, of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So he's going to speak to people who believe in a ripped Zeus who lives in the clouds and throws lightning bolts at people right? That's their view of God, is total uh, military power, right? Which, by the way, if you look at the heroes that we have in the stories that we tell, the Arnold Schwarzeneggers and The Rock, right? Generally, they're the people that can win bicep curl competitions, right? And yet Paul comes and he's saying, I, I, I was that. And that's not what true power is. Let me talk to you about what true power is. It's Jesus coming to this earth and relinquishing his power and serving and offering grace and dying on a cross on our behalf. And so he's hoping to come to these people and reshape their image of who God is. And so he gives this message to them. And I'm going to read all the way through it and we're going to unpack it a little bit because it's one of the most profound texts that we find in all of Scripture. A way to engage in a culture that isn't necessarily listening to you, but knowing at the end of the day, I need you to just understand a couple of things, right? To move towards God, we have to start at an elementary level. Now, these Greek people had no need for elementary level. They were, they were master's degree, right? They were in law school. And yet Paul teaches them on such a basic level, um, it's beautiful. So he says this, starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I, per I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Quick pause tangent, okay? 
He's speaking to people that he doesn't have any authority over that believe something different than him. And what does he do? He starts with honor and respect, right? I think we can learn a lot from that as we're engaging this culture from our social media um, to just the way that we talk to and about others that might believe differently than us, that he begins with this honor and respect. And he, he, calls, um, he calls to attention the fact that they're connected, right? That you're religious and I'm religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Again, just reshaping this idea of that's, that's not God. I want to tell you about the real God. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And this is where he gets into the crescendo of what he wants to say, the very basics. And he says this, that they should, and he's talking about what is our relationship with God supposed to be? It's definitely not about just, just statues and offerings. This is what our relationship with God should be, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far, far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. Now he's quoting their poetry, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Again, he's expanding the idea of God. God's not this big. He's not in your box. He's bigger than that. The times of ignorance God overlooked, and again, this is where it turns. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul leads with honor and respect, not criticism, finds common ground, highlights connection, speaks to his audience with eloquent words, but all of his eloquent words lead up to just a few simple ideas. He's trying to bring them all to a couple of basic ideas of how to relate to God, because all of us have to start there, right? He says, one, we all have to seek God. And two, we, we all feel our way towards him and find him. So these just seem like principles, unless you zoom into the story of Paul. See, Paul was a Pharisee who hunted down Christians until he had an experience with God. And what happened to him in that experience? He was blinded. And so Paul, as, as well as anyone on earth, knows the fear and the wrestling of feeling your way towards something when you can't quite see it enough. And he's giving this imagery to these people who have a transactional relationship with God, and he's saying, okay, all of us have to seek him, but you don't do it the way that you're doing it. 
we move towards him in relationship, and that's messy. That's not perfect. It's not going to be as easy as you've had in the past. We feel our way towards him, and we find him. And he gives this encouragement, and he says, though he is not far, far from each one of us. He says, you are to seek him. As you're seeking him, it's going to be messy. You're going to have to feel your way through the dark to do so. I remind you that Paul just left prison, and a prison in this day would have been a dungeon downstairs or in a basement of a place, and as the door locked behind them, there would have been no lights in the room. They would not have been able to see their hand in front of their face, and so this man knows what it means to wander in the dark. And the encouragement is, as you're in that dark place, that God, even though you are to seek him, that he's not far from any of us, And as you come to this new realization and as your idea of the nature and character of God is reshaped, your job is to repent. It's to turn from false views and false beliefs about God and walk towards truth and allow that to change you as you move forward. The ways in which we share who God is We can do that in different ways. We can open the scriptures, and those are beautiful. God has given us ways to have revelation of who he is, um, and that's beautiful. Paul is both sharing truth with these people, but also weaving his story inside of the truth that he's telling. Um, This last week, because I am a preacher and because I, I love to write and I love just ideas, I have not stopped thinking about one idea. And I bet most of you are like me. You've not stopped talking or thinking about clock repair, right? Like all of you. On your way here, you're like, man, I really, I hope Chris talks about clock repair today, right? But I was listening to something that started talking about clock repair and one concept inside of it that just I I have not stopped thinking about for the last couple of weeks. And it's this. When you go to repair an old clock, so if you are a clock repair person, um, you have a a unique dilemma. So does anyone here love cars, right? Like building cars and repairing cars? Okay. For the most part, if you go to, to build a car or restore a car, an old car, okay, you can look up the manual, you can look up, you can go to the manufacturer and you can look and see what the original design of that car was supposed to be and you can search for that part and you can find and you can piece by piece restore that car back to its original design and the easiest way to do that is one, uh, to look at the manual or two, get next to somebody who knows the manual, right? But there is, it's not you by the way, you're not feeling your way through and be like, I think this goes here, right? for most of us, okay? Clocks are a different idea. So the creation of clocks has been happening for thousands of years, and the basic principles of creating a clock are similar. We need something that tells time, and a second is a second, and an hour is an hour, right? And that's what it's going to do. But then the functions of the clock can be completely different. An old clock like uh, that was handmade by someone might tick away the time with a pendulum, with a spring, with a pulley system. It might have bells that are supposed to strike an hour, or a bird that's meant to pop out and cuckoo at you, right? There can be hundreds of tiny individual pieces, each 
that needs to interact with the others precisely to make the job of repair even trickier for an old clock. You often can't tell what's been done to a clock over hundreds of years. Maybe there's been damage that was never fixed or fixed badly. Sometimes entire portions of the original clock are missing. You can't know for sure a clock that that old doesn't come with a manual. So instead, the few people left in the world who know how to do this kind of thing rely on what are often called witness marks to guide their way. And here's what that looks like. Witness marks are a line, a spot, or a groove or blemish that serves as an indicator to work being done. For clocksmiths who work on antique clocks, most clocks arrive with no operating manual or repair history, so the witness marks, the scars or notches left on the inner workings of an old clock, guide the clocksmith to know what path to follow. So if you're working on an old clock and you're using a a piece of metal to move metal, um, that leaves evidence. And people with tuned eyes are able to look inside of that and understand what parts of the clock were original, what parts have been replaced, what parts have had a lot of work done after the fact, right, to move it away from original design or maybe, maybe to replace a part of the clock that was damaged along the way. And clocksmith's job, the best clocksmiths don't just know the parts that are supposed to be inside of a clock, but they are attuned to see the witness marks that show that show that work has been done. Because their goal, their goal is to restore the clock to its original design. They want the bird to pop out when the bird was supposed to pop out because the designer of the clock designed it that way. They don't want it to pop out when they want to. It's the idea of original design. All through Paul's writings, he is communicating the truths of God's original design for us. All through the scriptures, we see ideas and concepts and stories that serve as witness marks for us that God is here and he is present and he is real and he is intimate in our lives. And sometimes these are huge and they're loud, like pillars of smoke and fire to the Israelites. They serve as as witness marks to say, God's saying, I'm here and I'm with you. They are impactful, is in the life of Jesus And God has given us witness marks continually. He wants us to see them, and he wants us to understand them at the basic level. He starts with these these grand concepts. I'm here, right? If you read the Old Testament, you you see kind of elementary teachings of like, if you do this, you will die, right? And sometimes we look at that and we think it's barbaric, and we forget the fact, right, that, um, for instance, that we are closer to the year 5,018, than we are to the Exodus, right? Think about that for a second. We are closest, closer to the year 5,018 than we, are to, than we were to the Exodus. And think of how much has happened in science and culture to understand and for us to grow as human beings. And so God starts in these very basic ideas. And our job is to look at those as witness marks and for God to say, I am here and I am present in your lives. It doesn't matter the audience. God has been and will continue to, in his way, in his time, communicate I am with you. Has anyone seen Karate Kid? Right? Young people in the room are like, what is that? Right? <laughs> karate Kid, all right? when the Karate Kid is learning, he's first given a task, a, a task to wax on and wax off. And he thinks that job is silly and unimportant. Yet it is the building blocks for what he needs to learn. 
God knows, as the Greeks had done, if we fast forward past the building blocks, past the foundational way that we are to relate to him, we're missing something. And so you'll see these time and time again, the, the stories of God that a person is brought to their knees through pain, through suffering, through circumstance. And this isn't because we have a God that does not care about our circumstances, but this is because we have a God that knows that if we miss the important things, we miss everything. And so we see story after story of a person who has to, in humility, drop their way of thinking and their way of understanding and relating to God and adopt a new and a more intimate way. And I think this is just my little theory. Most of the time, that, that is the most basic ideas. Understanding that my job is not just to appease God, but to seek Him. And then as I'm doing that, I'm, I'm feeling my way through the dark. And that is a very vulnerable place to be. Um, like a decade ago, I was living with some friends, and uh, they had a really big dog. Okay? Now, this dog was your best friend if you knew him, and if you did not know him, he was the fiercest defender of his territory and his people. Okay? One night, I went to a movie, and I came home late, and the door was locked, and I come in, and all the lights are off, and I come in, and I open the door, and I close it, and I can't see anything. And because I haven't lived there that long, I can't remember where the lights are either, and I'm just like, okay, I'll just walk to my room. As I start to take a step... I hear the most terrifying growl I have ever heard in my entire life, and I do not know where it's coming from, right? I'm in a dark room, and there is a big dog with large teeth, right, that doesn't like me and, and in reality probably doesn't know who I am, and I have a choice, and I'm in an incredibly vulnerable position because I have to, I don't have time to attune my eyes to the dark, I have to feel my way through the dark, and I have two choices. I can either go search for the lights, or I can run my behind towards my room, right? I chose option two, okay? And I start sprinting, I hit one kitchen chair, I knock it over, I don't care. It's probably, hopefully the dog trips over it as it's coming to bite me, right? And I... <coughs> But as I'm finding my way through the dark, I hit the, the wall and I feel my way over and I find the doorknob and I go in and I shut the door and I'm in safety, right? Paul is giving this analogy to our faith. And I think if we're honest, we would relate to it. I think we come here and there's a, there's a pretty way that we worship and that's beautiful and that's amazing. But if we're honest about our faith that we are continually each and every day showing up and walking through dark places and feeling our way towards God and not knowing exactly where to step next and exactly where to go. And Paul is saying that's exactly how it's supposed to be. That's how it's designed to be. Now, as God often does, he makes me live these things out as I'm learning them. Uh, about a week and a half ago, I go to a middle school camp, okay? Uh, if you've ever been to a middle school camp before, you are probably still washing off the smell of said camp off of your body because Middle schoolers do not subscribe to the theory of deodorant for most of the time. And um, we, we actually had leaders meetings every single morning, and we were cracking up the very last morning because um, our job first thing in the morning was to get everyone to pack, right? 
And one of the leaders was telling me that he had all these boys in his room. And uh, so they're packing their stuff back up in a room. You know, if you have one middle schooler, their room looks like a tornado hit. So if you have eight or nine in one place, it's a disaster, right? And so uh, they're packing their stuff. And he said he kind of looked over. And as they were taking the Ziploc bag with all the toiletries and putting it back in their big bag, he noticed something that um, mom or dad or someone had very carefully and kindly packed brand new toothpaste and brand new soap. And they had bought them like you do in a box, right? And as he zoomed in, he was like, those boxes aren't open yet, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden, we have middle schoolers that have been at a camp for five days that haven't brushed their teeth, have not showered, or, or used any sort of soap on their bodies, right? This is the reality of middle school. This is the Athens culture that we're dealing with when we're trying to share the gospel with middle schoolers, right? When you have to do it from like six feet away by the end of camp. And so we're in this mode, and this beautiful thing happens. Um, every single day we have uh, morning devotions where we share, and we break into small groups, we have discussion, and uh, it's going well for the most part, but getting middle schoolers, especially at the end of a night, to get, get their attention is a very unique craft to try to do. And there's one particular young man that's in my, um, that's in my cabin that doesn't know anyone there, and he's kind of struggling because he doesn't have any connections. There's nowhere just completely safe for him to turn to. And, and so he, um, every time we go to do worship and everything, he tells me he has a headache, and he wants to go outside. And so uh, the first night, I was like, okay, you know, uh, why don't you come in back in after worship? And so he does, though, and he sits right down next to me, and he puts his head down, and about 10 minutes into the message, I hear a snore, right? And so, like, I'm just like, buddy, come on now. And so he sits up, and he's just doing his thing. It's not, he's not trying to be disrespectful, right? But he's just not, it's not engaging in him. And so we just keep doing our thing all week long and hanging out, and every single night, basically, he, he says, I got a headache, and I need to take a walk, and, or, or I need to go outside. And so we keep doing that, keep doing that. And by the second to last night, when he asked me this, I said, I say, let's go, why don't we just take a walk, right? And so we break off from the rules of the camp, and we, we're there doing worship, and we just go take a walk. And um, we start, I just start to get to know his story, start to share a little bit of mine as well. And I got it like another yard down the field with him in terms of relationship. Not, not, no breakthrough happened or anything like that, but this is the first time we got a consistent amount of time, and that was a helpful time. But um, at the end of it, he just said he wanted to sit outside and, and listen from outside because he had a headache, and we said, okay. And then the next day um, happens, and we have the most epic water balloon fight ever, okay? 2,500 water balloons, 207 middle school kids. Um, unfortunately, not a good time to be a leader at that point. <clears throat> and so we end up all, it's, it's a, we're having a blast. We're soaking wet. There's like 20 minutes left until we have lunch. And so we have to rush back into our cabins and go change. And most of the time when we go change and everything, and by the way, most of these middle schoolers aren't changing, right? Um, we all have to go change kind of like locker room style at the same time. Well, as I go in there, I go to change my shirt. And uh, he asked, he said, what's that, right? And I have this tattoo on my arm. And I was like, that's a tattoo um, right there. And this isn't a, like a me sharing pro tattoo or anything. This is just my story. This is me. And um, he goes, what is it? And I go, well, it's a ship um, that's in a storm. And he goes, why? 
right? And so this is literally the most attention I've gotten from him all week long. So I'm like, all right, Lord, we're doing this, all right? And so I start to share, and I said, well, actually, the ship is me. And so I, I designed this, and um, I got this um, after I had gone some, through some pretty intense storms in my life. And so the ship is me, and it's going through uh, a couple of different things. It's battling the waves, it's battling the rain, it's battling the wind. And those all stood for something in my life. And, but if you look at the side of the boat right here, there's a rope going down into the water. And I, I put that there for a reason, because the rope is anchored. And I said, the, the boat is me, and it's supposed to symbolize that I have this relationship with God that can, um, I'm now, I now know that can withstand any storm, and it's anchored in a place that uh, no one else gets to see. That's just me and him. And I can't, I'm, it's not my, I don't need to prove that to you, anyone else, I need, that's just my story. And literally this, this like three, four minutes of me sharing this was the most he had ever engaged with me in this entire time. And so... I don't think a lot of it. I just shit. This is my story. This is, to be honest, this is a witness mark in my life. This is, this is a representation of something that God has done in my life, and it's a reminder um, of that. And so we go to lunch, and we have lunch, and we go to have our evening chapel again, and my friend again has a headache. And I'm like, Lord, come on. This is our last one. And I say, can I take a walk with you again? And so we go, and we take a walk, and we walk by this picnic table, and instead of walking by it, he just sits down at it. And as he sits down, he has a Bible in his hand, and he opens it up, and he said, what are we reading? And I was like, say what? Right? And he's like, well, what are they reading in there? And I was like, Ephesians 2? Like, <laughs> and so I'm like, yeah, let's do this. And so we just open, and we start reading. And we just start, start reading the scriptures, and I'm really excited for this moment. And you can tell that he's kind of he's burdened. And then he says, just out of the blue, he says, how do you know God is real? And I'm like, crap. You know, like, <laughs> I was ready for all the other ones. Like, and I went to Bible college and everything. I'm supposed to be prepared for this moment. And I got a Bible and everything, but... Something inside of me is like, he, he's not looking for the, the, that answer. He's looking for a witness mark. And so I sit for a minute, and I'm just like, well, and I promise I don't have an answer. Like, I don't have this canned answer right now. And, I'm, and I think, honestly, to myself, and I'm searching for one. I'm searching in the dark for one. And I said, well, you know, when, when my son runs to me and he hugs me, there's something about that inside of me that says that's what's supposed to happen. Like that, that shouts, like, this is good. This, that I did, and, and I said, I didn't put that there. Like, I didn't have anything to do with that. That's just in me, right? And I said, when my, my wife, she grabs my hand when we're sitting next to each other, and she knows that I love physical touch, and she just has this way of affirming, like, like you're important, and you're mine, and we're together. Um, I said, I, I, don't, I don't know, but that, that does something inside of me that reminds me that there's a designer to all this, that I didn't, that's not an accident that happens. And then I said, and penguins. And he's like, what? I said, and, and penguins, because, and one of my favorite authors talked about how um, with penguins, male and female penguins uh, in the Arctic, they, they mate, and then the female has the baby, and she gives the egg to the male, and then the female goes, uh, and he, she goes out to sea, and she, she's gone for a long period of time. 
right? And just as that egg hatches and food is necessary for both the father who's going, um, who has not eaten and his sole job has been taking care of this egg and keeping it off the ground because if this egg touches the ground, it will freeze and it will die. Just when it's seeming bleak and there's no hope, that's when the mom returns with food. And this author that I love, he says, something put that in the penguin. There was no tutorial to watch, right? You, you return now. That's a design to that. And he sits there with, and he's listening to this. And all of a sudden he gets really burdened and he starts going, what? What? And he starts and he stops. And I'm just sitting there like, what's that going on right now? And he says, well, and I go, bud, what is it? And he goes, I believe in science, right? And I'm like, what? He goes, I believe in science and I believe in Jesus. And it hits me that literally for, from his upbringing, from what he has learned in life, is his walking through the dark, somehow those are exclusive things, that he cannot both believe in science and believe in Jesus. And he is in turmoil because he does, he's like, I believe in Jesus, but I, I, I believe in this stuff over here. And he starts asking me some questions. And I said, buddy, <clears throat> you know, it's the, I love science too. You know, I love studying psychology. It's one of my passion areas. And actually, here's the cool thing. Um, everything that's true in science is God's, right? Now, the scientists may not proclaim that, but that, it's his. He's the designer of all of us. And guess what? God loves science too, right? And like his eyes just go like, what? Like cannot compute. Like if you ever had the spinning wheel and you're in an iPhone or an Apple computer that can't. And he is, you've literally, see, he's been burdened by this. He's never put these two together. Okay. And I'm sitting there and it hits me because I've been studying for this. And it hits me that I've just laid witness to a young man who has been feeling his way through the dark. And he has something in him that's been moving him to God. Right? But he doesn't know exactly how to do it. And there's all these kind of false narratives and these false ideas that, that he's been given. And, and I got to be a part of reshaping that to bring the real God into view for him. I've met for, with this mentor for quite a while. And at the end of almost every meeting that we have, he says this thing that always makes me so mad. He says, and he's way smarter than me and way more experienced than me and way more mature than me. And he always says, um, I say, thank you for meeting with me. And he says, oh, I learned way more from this than you ever will. And I'm always like, like, I probably shouldn't. Well, I always just want to say, shut up. That's not true. <laughs> like, that's not true, right? And this is one of the first times I was ever like, I get it. Like, as I shared with him, I got 10,000 times more out of that interaction than anything else because I, I witnessed him gaining a witness mark, right? I saw him moving through the dark, all right? And for one of the first times, I think, in his life, he was able to have this place and this time where he was like, no, no God is, is real, right? He's, he's real. And I was able to share through my witness marks and my own testimony and it wasn't just this eloquent Bible reading. It was just my story. <sighs> Friends, we have a responsibility. It is so easy now to miss what God is doing in our lives. We have a responsibility to share and to acknowledge it. 
where, where there were times where these things were louder before. I truly believe that the discipline of looking intently at the inner workings of your own life in this world and the relationships around you are all the more important to see him because this world is louder than ever before. And you're needed. Like, it's your responsibility to not only acknowledge the witness marks in your life, the ways that he moves, right? There are, there are people who love science in this room, and so you're going to be drawn to intricate things, and you need to move forward that, towards that because that doesn't discredit God. That actually proves that there's an uh, intricate designer to this world. Our job is to move towards those witness marks, but then beyond that, and this is my challenge, your job is to share them. Your job is to find a picnic table for someone who's wrestling with their faith and not have all the answers, by the way, but just have what you know, just you, what you know. That's it. And watch what God does in your weakness in your blubbering, in your messiness. I, I promise I thought I blew it at first because he, how do I know God is real? And I was just like, huh? Like I, I, <laughs> I knew that the, the Bible college answer wasn't going to work for him, but penguins was. God has left witness marks in all of creation. He's left us in, in the scriptures. He's left us in the Holy Spirit, in, re, in the relationships, in the ways that we know that this world is supposed to function, in the way that we are to relate to one another and to him. You have, you have something inside of you that's calling, that's beckoning, that's yearning out to that. And I'm I implore you to follow it, even when it seems silly or crazy, that you are uniquely designed to, to find your way through the dark and acknowledge those witness marks and then to let them become you. And in all humility, share them and just watch what God does. Watch what he does. Part of the reason I got this tattoo on my arm is that I and I just feel like I'm supposed to share this. I went, I went through a tat, uh, I went through a divorce that almost ended me. That this is all I did know. And when everything else was spinning and moving, the only thing I did know is that God was with me. And so I don't have other answers than that. That's all I have. And so I choose to share that and just shut up after that. That's what I know. He's with me. He's guiding me. I, I make dumb mistakes all the time as I wander through the dark. Um, but that's just part of the journey. And our job is to allow and create space for others to make mistakes in that same um, journey. But friends, you need to see where God is moving in your life and where he has moved, and then you need to share that with others. So as I close today, I just ask um, one last question as we go into a time of worship. were sitting at the picnic table and he asks you how do you know that God is real what would your answer be what would your answer be would you pray with me Lord I don't I don't have more words than that to be honest I, I don't want to move us away from that place I pray that that question is is searing into our hearts and our souls right now. How do we know that you are real 
I pray that we can answer for us, not the Bible answer, not the pastor answer, but our unique, powerful answer. May this time be a time that we can search for that and in the dark, may we allow um, ourselves the freedom to not exactly know where to step, but trust that you are with us. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.